0: This is FemPower Power Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, Starts now.
2: First, have your symptoms normalized. You don't even know if you're truly having a problem. And then you see a physician and you get this dismissal or create the self-doubt of maybe maybe it's all in my head or maybe it really isn't a problem. Then what that does, it, it delays the diagnosis. In fact, one survey found that about one in three women with uterine fibers reported a five year plus delay in seeking treatment.
0: Welcome to this second bonus episode brought to you by MyoVant Sciences. In the first bonus episode, we spoke about menstrual health equity. And my guests were Claire Coder of Aunt Flo and Michaela Bedard of Period, the Menstrual Movement. Check out my show notes to listen to that incredible and important episode. We're now pivoting to the clinical, social, and economic impact of uterine fibroids. According to the Baird et al. paper published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, by the age of 50, 80% of black women and 70% of white women will have uterine fibroids. Unfortunately, with a main symptom being heavy bleeding, which is an often normalized symptom, the diagnosis is often delayed. In some cases, this can lead to more invasive treatments like hysterectomies being required. Today, I am joined by two guests from Myovant Sciences who are here to raise awareness about uterine fibroids and revisit the status quo in uterine healthcare. So welcome to the episode today. It is so great to have you both. So why don't we begin by you providing a bit about yourself and your background, and then we can get into our important topic. So Juan Camillo, why don't you go
2: first? Uh, Thank you, Georgie. Thank you for for having us here today. I'm Juan Camillo Arjona, Chief Medical Officer at MyAvan Sciences. I'm a gynecologist by training, and I've uh, been a very passionate advocate for women's health for, as far as I can remember, and I am extremely excited to be here today.
1: I'm Kaylon Taylor-Clark, and I'm the head of strategic partnerships and innovation at my Van sciences. Sorry about that. Um, I have been also a passionate uh, supporter of women's health, but also gendered health equity and racial and ethnic disparities in health and health care for the past 20, 25 years. So um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation today.
0: Well, well, thank you so much for being here, both of you. I've been following my sciences for quite a long time and have been truly impressed by your advocacy work, and so it's a true honor to have you both on this episode uh, to discuss very important topic. So, why don't we dive right in? So, let's first begin by defining heavy menstrual bleeding. And, you know, it may seem obvious we say heavy menstrual bleeding, but it's really important to clarify this given there are so many nuances of what normal is, and there is a normalization of many women's health symptoms, including this heavy bleeding. So, Juan Camillo, why don't you give us a start on that?
2: Yeah, I think this is a, a very important topic that uh, affects not only women with uterine fibroids, but any um, conversations you have about uh, mental health, uh, because all symptoms associated with uh, menstruation are, tend to be normalized. Um, to define what heavy menstrual bleeding is, you, you have to look at it a, a two ways. One has been the regulatory definition of heavy menstrual bleeding was based in some prior studies. And they find that heavy menstrual bleeding is more than 80 mLs of, of bleeding in a menstrual period, which is approximately one-third of a cup in a cycle. However, nobody is measuring the volume. So it's a measure that it's not intuitive to patients or, or physicians. Um, a regular tampon, for example, can absorb about 4 mLs of uh, blood or menstrual blood. Um, there is another definition that's been uh, produced by NICE and by uh, that is now embraced by the, the FIGA, which is the International Federation of, of Ceptic Gynecology, and that is defined as an ex- excessive menstrual blood loss which interferes with a woman's physical, emotional, social, and material quality of life, in, in which can occur alone or in combination with other symptoms. And this is a very patient-centric definition. It is. It means if your menstrual uh, 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 loss is bothering you and affecting you in any way, it is more than it should be, and you should be talking to a physician about it.
0: And I appreciate the patient-centric approach because, you know, when you talk about the milliliters, I know I've read this information and every time I'm like, okay, thanks for the data, but I don't know what that means because I measure in how much I change my tampon or how many times I change my pads. So, Kaylon, did you have anything you wanted to add um, about about this definition and and topic?
1: Based on what Juan Camilo is saying about how this affects women's daily lives, it's really important that... We discuss it. You know, heavy bleeding impacts lives on a daily basis. People with fibroids and heavy menstrual bleeding, just as one data point, are 15 times more likely to be admitted to the emergency department uh, than those without heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, Women are also more likely to experience anemia and they're more likely to miss work due to fibroids. So, this is an issue that not just affects their health, but actually affects the woman holistically. And, And so, it's important that we have that discussion.
0: Yes. And so you alluded to, to uterine fibroids. So menstrual bleeding can be a sign of many different conditions, but today we are focusing on uterine fibroids. So why don't we talk about what uterine fibroids are? And let's also talk about some of the symptoms and even the prevalence, because I think that's a really important nuance to cover. Juan Camillo.
2: Yeah, um, I think that's a, that's a very important point. Uh, because we talk about it, but not everybody knows what they are. And so uterine fibers are benign uterine tumors that that grow in the in the muscular wall of the uterus or the womb. Uh, they are uh, very common. To the point that at the time of uh, menopause or around age 50, 80% of black women um, and about 70% white women would have uterine fibers that would be identifiable. Um, and although the majority of those women will not have symptoms, a large proportion do. And what they do, they have either heavy or prolonged bleeding as the most common symptom. They may also have pain as menstrual uh, pain or cramping. They uh, they complain of passing blood clots, bloating, um, and because of the, where the uterus is located, if it if uh, uh, fibers are too large, they can Compress the, the bowel or the bladder and have urinary or, or or gastrointestinal symptoms, as well as fatigue. And these symptoms can be mentally, physically, and emotionally debilitating for women. Just as another data point, that in the United States, uh, uterine fibers are the leading cause of hysterectomies, which is a major surgery, and they have a pretty significant burden, uh, economic burden, and and for the patients, but also from the overall society and healthcare system from health healthcare system perspective, the estimated annual direct costs of uterine fibroids, including surgery, hospital admissions, outpatient visits, and medications, is between 4 and $9 billion. The amount of lost work hours cost range between $1 and $17 billion per year. And um, when you add obstetric, obstetric outcomes, like complications of pregnancy, that adds 200 to a million to seven point seven billion dollars annually. Uh, so overall, altogether, it's estimated that urine fibers are, uh costs in the United States between five and thirty-four billion dollars annually. So it's a pretty substantial impact to society as a whole, and and specifically for these women. From a patient perspective, it's even more dramatic when you put it on on a on a single patient that. Women with with uterine fibroids spend more than three times more on health care than their counterparts that don't have fibroids, and that accounts for around $13,000 on average every year. And then, of course, after they get diagnosed, that cost in, increases substantially. There is data that shows that uh, more than 50% of these women will require help, financial help from friends and family to cover the cost of their care for uterine fibroids. Unfortunately, around 50% of them will not get enough to support themselves through the 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 journey of uterine fibroids, and this increase this this cost include cost for paying for a hysterectomy, uh, cost for uh, their increased cost of care after they get diagnosed by around $14,000, absenteeism, the fact that they can't go to work and then lose uh, um, wages because of that uh and then uh, other things and, and of course the increased costs on sanitary products every month which is substantial we know that patients with fibroids already live with a significant burden to manage their symptoms but this financial impact added on top of that adds to the stress and the mental effects that uterine fibroids can have on a on a patient so all in all this is uh that it, this is a very impactful condition for women and it has long, long uh, consequences over time, not only in their health, but also their self-esteem, as well as impact in their careers. So it is, it is a pretty substantial impact.
0: How is it that uterine fibroids specifically are identified and treated? Because you also spoke about, you alluded to it at least, about not in all cases does something need to be done about it. And so um, can you talk a little bit more about about that?
2: yeah and and i'll go back to the point i made about the definition right the definition of heavy bleeding which is the most common symptom and the point you made about normalization of those symptoms so what is key is that that women understand what is normal for them and then they in in to do that the first thing is keeping track of their periods and that it's now very frequently done through um, uh, uh, apps that allow you to do that. Even some apps will allow you to collect the number of tampons or pads that you're using uh, as a measure of, of, of volume of blood loss. And getting familiar with what is it expected for you and what is unexpected, what is a, a change in that pattern. And that information is very valuable. Not only for for women, but for them to be able to have a more informed conversation with their physicians. Usually, to be diagnosed, uh, a woman perceives that bleeding to be bothersome, and and therefore worth having a conversation about. Uh, a physician, uh, gynecologist, usually will do a full um, description of their history of how this when they started, how it how it's uh, perceived by the patient. Then will usually do what's called a pelvic exam, which is a uh, an attempt to check the uterus, ovaries, the vagina, and in through that, um, depending on the size of the fibroids, you, you may very well already make a diagnosis. To confirm that, it, usually an ultrasound is done where some uh, sound waves are used to see the uterus and you can see and describe very precisely the location and size of fibroids. Some specific cases may require other tests like a like uh, looking with a camera inside the uterus and, and then you can see some fibers that are protruding into the inside of the uterus. And, and that is another way of getting a diagnosis.
0: So we're not missing anything. When it, when does one know the pelvic um, exam is sufficient versus needing to get something more done? Because we'd hate to miss it, correct?
2: Absolutely. And I, I think that it this is a slightly different procedure than the laparoscopy. Okay. Um, usually, with the pelvic exam, you're you're basically touching the outside of the uterus, so you can see if it's larger and you can feel the fibroids, then that's pretty evident. Then the ultrasound will show you the majority of of fibroids as well, but if what we're talking about is a small fibroid that is protruding into the cavity of the uterus. You may not be able to see that with uh, or or feel that with a pelvic exam. And you may see it in the uh, ultrasound, but you may not know if it is a fibroid or something else. Got it. And therefore, what you do is call a hysteroscopy, where you use a, an instrument similar to the one you use in laparoscopy, but smaller. And through the vagina and through the cervix, you can go and take a look inside the uterus. And then you will see the fibroid protruding, and then you will be able to confirm the diagnosis. And you, you in many cases, will be able to remove it there and, and be basically treated for okay. that. So it, it, it's a, a very specific set of, of, of fibroids that would require that, um, that type of procedure.
0: Okay. Well, I have to say it's refreshing to speak to something that is, um, can be clearly diagnosed because um, so many things are, are hard to diagnose in women's health. So given this fairly straightforward diagnosis, why are uterine fibroids undiagnosed and how does this delayed diagnosis impact treatment?
1: Yeah, well, before approaching the care provider, it's it's difficult to identify because it's hard to talk about, not only for individual women, but for our society as a whole. You know, the normalization of women's heavy periods and pain have left many people without the tools to understand when their periods are abnormal, as you may know, right? So when to seek treatment and how to get a diagnosis can be confusing and frankly difficult to navigate. Uterine fibroids also tend to run in families, which can lead to the normalization. You know, you hear, well, my mother had that, and my grandmother had that, so it must be normal. Um, that kind of thinking really does dull the, the, Im, the impact of being able to identify um, the fibroids. And so um, that's a really important piece. And then add to that society and the taboo nature of talking about menstruation. It serves to further marginalize and isolate people. So this can be really difficult to talk about. And so when we get to a provider, even more barriers come into play than just the ability to talk about periods and heavy menstrual bleeding in particular.
0: So thank you very much for that explanation. So Juan Camillo, can you talk to us then about the the treatment choices? So we've talked so much about the challenges. Um in facing getting diagnosed even if even though it is a fairly straightforward diagnosis, so now we've gotten that diagnosis. What do we do next?
2: Yeah, and i it's important to understand that there are many treatment options in, in, uh, uh, thankfully today for patients and and not every option is right for every uh, person, and therefore having a thorough conversation about those options. Including the, the 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 woman's perspective on what is best for her at their stage in their life, it's it's uh it's a very important. The choice of treatment is guided by the size, and number, and location of the fibroids. Like a small intra a fibroid inside the cavity may be very well treated with a hysteroscopy, as I just described before, um, as well as the it's also guided by uh, the woman's symptoms. If it's more Pressure or bleeding or pain, bleeding of course being the most frequent, and of course the treatment preferences, right? For some women, and they're staying alive, they will be uh, still looking for having uh, kids in the future, and therefore more more uh, aggressive procedures like hysterectomy may not be a preferred option, and for other women it might be. Uh, So it is very important to keep the patient perspective in the decision of what is the right uh, treatment option for her and of course the larger the fibroids the more severe the symptoms are the more likely that more aggressive solutions may be needed and therefore uh, this may have a negative impact on patient mental well-being and of course limit the options of treatment as i I mentioned so it is very important to we for us to reduce the delay in diagnosis and in managing uh, the the normalization of symptoms and other other factors that we've discussed already so that we can get to the earliest possible diagnosis and and then give the, the most broad set of options for women to treat their symptoms.
0: You know, any words of wisdom, you know, especially since you've been a practicing physician of what women can do? I mean, I know on the Fem Power Health podcast, we encourage doing your research, being prepared with questions when you go to your doctor, but any other words of wisdom, because it isn't a black and white. I mean, obviously, if it's very severe and you're in a lot of pain, it's probably a little bit more clear um, what the options may be. But just curious if you have any um, words of wisdom.
2: As you pointed out, one is, uh, uh, well, I mentioned it before, making sure that, 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 that they understand their symptoms, right? And that's where keep, keeping a log or using an app, so that they can speak clearly um in in precisely about what they're going through will be very important for physicians to understand their perspective. But the other point that you raise is is doing the research and understanding what those options are. And and there's more and more information to days available in multiple multiple places in the internet and in other sources where they can see what is available, what are the pros and cons of each of those options. Uh, so that they're prepared for the conversation, but in addition to that, I think we we need to continue to work with the healthcare provider community so that they're prepared to provide that perspective. And in um, there, there are multiple resources now available. There are guidelines that highlight uh, the the importance of the patient perspective. In and therefore, this conversation will will uh, ensure that the provider is mentioning all the options and what are the benefits, uh, the pros and cons of each of those options so that together they can make a decision of what's best for her.
0: So now we know doctors have the best of intentions with patients, and um, yet we know so much has been written about implicit bias and medical gaslighting. I know it's a big hashtag in social media. So, Kaylan, maybe you can help us understand this dynamic.
1: Yeah, you know, this is an important dynamic, especially when we talk about racial disparities. Um, And mostly when we talk about what Juan Camilo just mentioned, which is we want patients to be aware, we want patients to have as much information as they possibly can, and then to go to the provider and be able to talk with the provider about that in a shared decision making context. But let me just take a step back to say what implicit bias actually is in the definition. Implicit bias is defined as thoughts and feelings that exist outside of conscious awareness and subsequently can affect human understanding, actions, decisions. Um, Unknowingly, these biases cause attitudes about other people based on personal characteristics that might include but not be limited to age or race or ethnicity. So implicit bias can affect how providers communicate with patients. Let's just put that on the table. And of course, people of color. What we know, at least from the literature, is that people of color are more likely to report lower satisfaction with healthcare based on their provider interactions. And so, this is an educational opportunity to disrupt those misconceptions and false beliefs, and about biological differences, for example, between races. Um, I would note that the medical gaslighting, um, which is actually a term taken from the 1944 movie with Ingrid Bergman, um, which you may know, uh, Gaslight. Gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation, which hinges on creating self-doubt. Now, this can be done. Gaslighting can be conducted both intentionally but also very unintentionally. And I want to note that when we're talking about providers potentially having this experience of medical gaslighting, a lot of this is unconscious, unconscious bias, unconscious uh, understanding of, of the patient. And so um, it's really it really creates an imbalance um in terms of our our awareness but then also the shared decision making so really medical gaslighting uh, arises from that imbalance of power and what we know is that doctors tend to always be the ones that are the knowledgeable ones about medical treatment and about the condition and we often think that, think that patients don't have agency that is shifting of course as as patients get more informed about their conditions um we hope that that Dynamic will shift, but it certainly does play a role and certainly does play a role in terms of the disparities that we see um, in particular in fibroids, but in other spaces of women's health. So it's important to acknowledge it, but it's also important to um, recognize that there are opportunities to overcome uh, these issues.
0: At the end of the day, we can't blame, we can't point fingers at, you know, the healthcare industry or the doctors or, oh, it's the insurance companies. I mean, it's, it's every human being um, and it's the system that we are all trying so hard to work on and to change and to transform women's health and, and all of healthcare. So thank you so much for that explanation. So Juan Camillo, tell us the impact of this implicit bias in treatment of uterine fibroids and probably a lot of women's health conditions.
2: Yeah, yeah. I it has a, a pretty significant impact and in, in, in relates to some of the things we've already discussed, right? Because this impacts the 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 treatment seeking behavior, right? If you are first have your symptoms normalized, and you don't even know if you're truly having a problem, and then you see a physician and you get this dismissal or create the self doubt of maybe maybe it's all in my head or maybe it really isn't. The problem, then what that does is it, it delays the diagnosis. And we said that is not a good thing because this is a progressive disease. Fibers can grow, you can get more symptoms and have a greater impact, and the treatment options may be diminished. So, in fact, one survey found that about one in three women with uterine fibers reported a five year plus delay in seeking treatment. And furthermore, half of them had seen, already seen two prescribers, two uh, healthcare providers, before the diagnosis was being made. So it's not that they didn't reach for them. It's not that they didn't recognize their symptoms, but they just didn't get diagnosed. And, and it's part of this problem. So it really has an impact on, on the future care of, of, of these women and, and their, their life.
0: So, Kaylon, maybe you could talk to us about whether or not there's um, certain groups of women who could potentially be more impacted as a result of this implicit bias and why that might be the case.
1: Well, we know and, you know, we see this play out across Black women's lived experience in particular of uterine fibroids. But there's a dearth of data actually on how uterine fibroids impacts other women of color, um, we know that populations of color in the U.S. are significantly more likely than white or Caucasian people to have uterine fibroids uh, and to develop more severe symptoms at an earlier age. So, And yet we see over a one-year gap in symptom on, from symptom onset to seeking treatment between black and white women. Um, that's significantly higher percentage of black women delayed four or more years before seeking treatment. That's a huge, huge number. And really, that's what exactly um, Juan Camillo is speaking to. The delay is likely a consequence of a constellation of factors, but very much including normalization of the symptoms, which um, we want to note. we really want people to understand that they don't need to normalize symptoms that are not normal. Um, And I think that's something I just want to repeat over and over. Um, But other things like distrust of an untrustworthy medical system, Um, and lack of access to care, you know, in the U S fibroids are the leading indication for hysterectomies as one Camilla pointed out earlier. Um, but black women are at least two times more likely as white women to have their uterus removed, um, via hysterectomy. And despite minimally invasive options, as we just discussed, black women continue to dominate the percentages of women having hysterectomy for benign disease, um, Finally, some healthcare providers may hold false beliefs about biological differences between black and white individuals. I hope that that is changing over time as we are refining medical education. Um, but for example, some believe that black people in general have less sensitive nerve endings, thicker skin, stronger bones. We all know that these things are not the case and um, that these, that that we really need to dispel some of that uh, belief, uh, both in the medical field, but also among people, um, among patients. So hopefully change is coming.
0: Speaking about changes coming, let's talk more about hysterectomy. What do we need to understand about this option?
2: Hysterectomy is a large surgical procedure in which the, the, the uterus or the womb is removed completely. And that is, uh, as I said, it's a pretty large surgical procedure. Uh, however, it's the right treatment option for, for some women with uterine fibroids. And that, that could be because the, the size of the fibroids in the uterus, the, the uterus itself can be extremely large and in, in be causing a lot of, of, of different problems, uh, particularly if it's in a, in a, a woman that has no desire for future fertility then that starts to become the right the right uh, option and should be discussed. But as we discussed, it should include the patient perspective because it's not free of consequences. For example, abdominal surgery, like a, a large hysterectomy, uh, may have complications in about 10% of patients. Not only the in, immediate con- complications of the procedure, but there are long-term consequences as well. It's been, uh, removal of uterus has been linked to Poor cardiac health over time, even even in women that keep their ovaries. So that is a that is a, a problem, is particularly when the hysterectomy is, is performed in a younger woman, then the risk over time uh, becomes larger. It's estimated that around 20% of women that had a hysterectomy for a non-cancer related condition may not have needed this procedure. So what we've seen and, and we've talked about how common hysterectomy is and how is driven mostly by uterine fibroids, or the the majority of them are due to uterine fibroids. Uh, When you look at the data, not everybody required a hysterectomy, and other options could have been considered. uh, So we're abusing of uh, one of our uh, treatment options, and again, we go back to this shared decision-making with a well-informed patient uh, about all the options that um, are available and defining what is the right option for her at this point in time. So so uh, to me that is the key point is we need to be enhancing and having those conversations and engaging the patient and a well-informed patient into the decision making of what's best for her.
0: I feel like my introduction of changes coming was probably uh too soon given the type of explanation you just gave about hysterectomy but I think it's important to have that perspective to talk about why the change that's coming is important and I always like to share these you know little milestones that start to create the big leaps in women's health. So the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is often referred to as ACOG, ACOG produces practice guidelines for healthcare professionals and educational materials for patients. And they provide practice management and career support, facilitates programs and initiatives to improve women's health, and advocates for members and patients. So they do a ton of work. But they've also, what is so important to know, is they have recognized that alternatives to hysterectomy are underused and they have made recent changes to their uterine fibroid management guidelines. So can you share, Juan Camillo, a little bit about what this means for women with uterine fibroids?
2: Yeah, I was personally very excited to see the updates to the ACO guidelines because they are showing a trend of everything we're discussing here today. Uh, first, they were, they were just recently updated within the last, uh, uh, two years, I believe last year. And, uh, the first thing it says is that all options should be on the table and that the benefits and risks should be provided to the patient clearly and objectively so that, um, in a shared dis- discussion, uh, uh, the best option can be decided for that particular woman. So that is to me one of the big successes from this update. Although they do not provide an algorithm algorithm for treatment like many other guidelines do, so do this first and follow with this. Um, I think that is very very fit for purpose for this because what we're saying is not every not one size fits all. And that means all the options should be on the table at the same time so that between the physician and the patient they can make the decision of what, which of those options is best for her. So we're really excited about, about the, what the, the ECHO guidelines bring today to advance this conversation.
0: No, and I appreciate you talking about how the definitive, lack of definitive algorithm is a good one because, you know, sometimes someone might say, Oh, but what if my doctor doesn't know, shouldn't they have the algorithm? But in this case, you know, and and I think with women's health in general, our bodies are so complex. It's not oh, you have uterine fibroids. It's in this box. You know, do something. Check yes or no. You know, it's it's the whole system that needs to be taken into account. So it's great to hear that not having that algorithm is actually helpful, and it is great news that um, they are guiding um, healthcare professionals to look at alternatives first. But Kalan. Um, we know that the healthcare system isn't perfect. It's sadly um, quite siloed. So, what concerns might there be around lack of awareness for these new practice guidelines, and how could that impact women who are struggling with uterine fibroids?
1: Well, as we know, at least on the medical side and, and in the health sciences side, the implications for guideline changes in practice are that they're slow to be applied. Um, and sometimes often not applied. Um, so the gap in time between actually publishing the guidelines and when the practice changes may be quite um, long. Um, so what we what we really want to focus on is being proactive in your disease management uh, decisions. And that just goes back to the point of shared decision making, um, which we think is really the gold standard. This is what women can do Um, Shared decision-making means that patients have the information that they need to be able to have a real conversation with their doctor and to have a productive conversation with their provider. I should say it may not be a doctor, but it introduces choice. It describes options, um, often integrating the use of patient decision support, um, helping patients explore the preferences and make decisions. Um, This requires empathetic discussions of reproductive plans patient values and treatment goals that are critical to shared decision making so that's really how we see being able to overcome that gap in terms of the practice or should say the publication to the practice
0: thank you for that and and i would like to also state that i had actually interviewed someone from acog Um, about different guidelines that were set in place postpartum. And, you know, she also acknowledged the challenges around that. So it's not just the three of us here, um, you know, it's people within ACOG who acknowledge this challenge. And uh, I'm inspired to make sure that in the show notes um, for this episode, I will post a link to the revised ACOG guidelines. So if anyone is having a challenge, they can share it with their doctor and hopefully they can spread the word to their practice to make sure everyone is aligned. So now let's get solution oriented, given these dynamics of what women can do. So, you know, you mentioned shared decision making and self-advocacy. Both of you have spoken about um, as a patient. It's, it's commonly discussed with uh, many of the doctors that I've also interviewed on the podcast. Um, so tell us what might this look like for uterine fibroids? So Kaylon, maybe you can get us started.
1: Well, as I mentioned, you know, the gold standard is shared decision-making, and I think um, that really is going to require, and I'll just repeat what I said before, empathetic discussions of reproductive plans in particular. That's going to be extremely important, both for an understanding of what treatment then the woman wants to have and at what time in her life she is, um, but also talking about the patient values. Uh, Her treatment goals are critical to shared decision-making, and I I reiterate that because Um, As we get more agency, and I like to say patients are getting more agency daily um, with more information that comes out, and that's what actually makes shared decision-making work, right? Um, That we have patients that have as much agency and information uh, in terms of not just um, what their condition is about, but also being able to articulate their preferences and their values and their needs. So um, that's what I think is one way that we can really overcome um, some of the issues that we see.
0: One, Camilla. What are your thoughts?
2: As a, as a gynecologist, I I am a true believer that healthcare providers want to do what's best for the patient. Like there's always good intent. Uh, however, a well-informed patient's perspective is not always part of that conversation. And then this this uh, what needs to be this shared decision making. It's gets uh, shifted with a lot of uh, or, or it's overpowered to the the physician. Right, that has more information and experience, and and in and, and um and therefore that shared decision making gets lost. So every activity that we do, and, and and that's why I'm very grateful for you everything you do, Georgie, because anything we do to provide information and raise awareness about the patient perspective with regards to uterine fibroids and in associated symptoms and and to be honest, anything related to women's health, because what many of the things we're discussing here can be applied to many other conditions, as you know, very well. So I think that awareness and raising awareness and, and advocating for this is probably a pretty important piece to this equation. And I, I also believe that that for the healthcare providers, uh, education and, and more shared decision-making techniques and how to engage the patient and make sure that she is understanding her options and the benefits and risks of each of them. It takes time and we should be all trained and prepared to do that. I think that that those things would, would bring um, way better outcomes for everyone here.
0: Outside of creating an ideal state where women had more than 10-minute doctor appointments, what else can women listening on the podcast do for themselves? And their loved ones.
2: Change must be driven from both ends of the this shared decision making equation, and I think that what women can do is is educate themselves and learn, uh, because knowledge increases their capacity to self advocate. And we're in this uh, uh, very exciting time where self advocacy by women we are seeing across the board in all uh, uh, areas of life, and, and this is not one uh, that is that is lacking. So. I think that that building on that momentum and taking control and ownership of of uh, your uh, life and your condition and having that conversation will will um, will drive a significant change.
1: I you know I can't agree more with Juan Camillo, and I just wanted to add to that that you know taking action by joining the women's health advocacy community is yet another way um, that you can be involved. Um, joining, for example, the uterine fibroids community, like our, some of our favorites, the White Dress Project, uh, the Fibroid Foundation, and others, um, from both individual education all the way to state and federal policy, the fibroids community is working really to drive change. Uh, social media pages will also be linked in, um, so that's another space to uh, to look Um, But I would also just note, please share this podcast with your community. Um, You know, I know, Georgie, that you are always talking about folks sharing it, but I I think the majority, especially of premenopausal people with uteruses will have fibroids in their lifetime. And yet many don't know about the condition. So awareness is key. So the more that we share this information with people, uh, the better they can take action, both for their own health, as well as the health of their communities.
0: Well, thank you both so much for educating the community about this very important condition and i think this is really relevant for women and healthcare professionals and even loved ones um, and those developing products that are supporting women's health and i thank you both for Myovant sciences commitment to women's health Um, so thank you so much for that and for both of you as individuals i know we've gotten to know each other over the past year or so and um, I just think you both are truly fantastic and just really appreciate your passion and hard work in this space because we we need it and um, the collaboration is key so thank you so much
2: thank you so much thank you so much Georgie for having us
0: Thank you for joining us today. If you like today's episode, please rate it and write a review where you listen to this podcast. It helps to make sure other women see this episode. You can also find FemPower Health on Instagram at FemPowerHealth. Please check out my show notes for references made in the podcast, along with a link to the Uterine Fibroids Toolkit, a patient empowered guide by the Society for Women's Health Research. And if you would like to learn more about uterine fibroids, listen to my episode with expert Dr. Opoku Anane out of UCSF. And as a reminder, the information discussed on the FemPower Health Podcast is for information purposes only. Always go to the doctor of your choosing for information that is relevant to your specific medical condition. Additionally, the views expressed by this episode's guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent, nor does it constitute an endorsement by Myovant Sciences of this episode. of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower healthcom Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations.